serverless computing is a way of designing applications that do not directly address or deploy application code to servers. Serverless applications are composed of stateless functions-as-a-service and stateful data storage systems such as Redis or DynamoDB. Serverless applications allow for the scale-up or scale-down of an entire architecture because each component is naturally scalable, and this pattern can be used to create a wide variety of applications. The functions-as-a-service can handle the compute logic, and the data storage systems can handle the storage. But these applications do not give the developer as much flexibility as an ideal serverless system might. The developer still needs to use cloud-specific state management systems. Vikram Srikanti is the creator of Cloudburst, a system for stateful functions-as-a-service. The reason that stateful functions-as-a-service don't really exist today is because we don't know a whole lot about how functions-as-a-service are being spun up on cloud providers. We know that we send our code to the cloud and it gets scheduled onto a server and then that code runs at some point on some server, but we don't know a whole lot about the durability of that server and how stable it is, if it's going to fall over, if the code is going to need to be rescheduled. And that's part of why we don't think of these things as stateful or reliable. Cloudburst is this project from Vikram Srikanti, and it's architected as a set of VMs that can execute functions as a service that are scheduled onto those VMs. Each VM can utilize a local cache as well as an auto-scaling key value store called Anna, which is accessible to the Cloudburst runtime components. Vikram joins the show to talk about serverless computing in general and his efforts to build stateful serverless functionality. His work comes out of the Rise Lab, which we have done a few shows on before. It's a computer science lab in Berkeley. Vikram, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. We've done many episodes about functions as a service. We've talked about the basic engineering concept. Give a brief overview for how functions as a service are used today. Yeah, so the core idea behind functions as a service is that the application developer shouldn't have to worry about thinking about servers, how they're configured, where they're running, and all that kind of stuff. And so the idea is that the application developer can write some code, whatever their business logic is, upload it to a service like AWS Lambda or Google Cloud Functions, and configure some trigger events. Let's say put it behind an API gateway or maybe configure it to run whenever an object is uploaded to S3, something like that. And then the cloud provider is responsible for taking care of when the function runs, where it runs, making sure that security is taken care of and all of that. And then the developer is only billed for the amount of time that the code is actually running down to the millisecond. And so today, what commercial functions as a service systems are really good at is taking care of things like event processing that doesn't require a lot of state or uh, things that aren't really latency sensitive. And some of the, the folks that we've talked to um, in our research have focused on you know, human-in-the-loop interactions where there's a relatively large latency budget that they can be dealing with so that they can take advantage of the flexibility that the service offers while also providing reasonable guarantees to their end users. What are the shortcomings of functions as a service systems today? Yeah, so the things that they really haven't focused on thus far are things that have non-trivial amounts of state and things that require relatively tight latency budgets. Um, the reasons for those are obviously you know, only known to the folks who are working at some of these major cloud providers. But I think in some sense, the, one of the core reasons is because these are non-trivial problems. It's not clear what the right way to think about state in a serverless world is and how, you know, while providing strong isolation, security, and so on, you can provide low latency access to state and make it really easy for programmers to deal with those things. And so even doing really simple things, things that might not even sound stateful, like doing function composition, for example, is pretty prohibitively slow on a lot of uh, fast systems today. In some of our initial benchmarks, we found that just running two arithmetic functions, like squaring an integer and then incrementing it, 
it takes as much as uh, 40 to 50 milliseconds per invocation. If you put those in two different functions, you've already paid 100 milliseconds. And the sort of rule of thumb for you know, interactivity on websites is, is couple, a couple hundred milliseconds. So if doing no computation takes 100 milliseconds, you've used up a lot of your latency budget already. And so those types of things are already difficult. And then you start thinking about how you can do more complicated things like, you know, modifying shared state across multiple parallel requests. And the, the state of the art for serverless infrastructure today is to basically throw a bunch of data in a storage system like Dynamo or S3 and rely on the application developer to resolve inconsistencies. Because as we all know, using these systems like Dynamo and S3, you don't get very strong consistency guarantees out of them. So you sort of are, are in the wild west. It's up to you as the application developer to make sure that your updates don't accidentally clobber each other, that if you're reading separate pieces of data, that they were written in some consistent format, whatever that means for your application and so on. There, there are very few guardrails in this space. What do we know about the implementation of AWS Lambda? Because AWS Lambda is the most widely used, the most mature function as a service platform. Do we know anything about how it's actually implemented under the hood? We know a little bit. And recently, Amazon has started to be more and more open about what their what their core infrastructure is composed of. Uh, about a year ago, or maybe a little more than that, they open sourced this platform called Firecracker, which is a micro VM hypervisor that basically they've built from the ground up. They basically wrote a hypervisor in Rust to reduce spin-up times for cold, what's called the cold start problem for fast systems. Cold start problem is basically a new request comes in, there are no resources allocated for that particular piece of code to run. And so they have to figure out where should those resources be allocated. They have to go set up an environment. They obviously have environments for many different languages and common runtimes. They have to download the code, you know, set it up in the right VPC, all of that stuff. And traditionally that cold start time in the, in the initial releases of Lambda could be, you know, multiple seconds long. And so what Firecracker has, has done that's really awesome is to bring a lot of that down. Obviously, there's still some, some, you know, speed of light constraints here. If you're uploading, you know, 100 megabytes of code or something, it's going to take a little bit of time to download. But as far as the, the core infrastructure goes, they have the, the spin up times for the individual VMs that user code is running down to about 100 milliseconds, I believe. So we know a little bit about the, the sort of core infrastructure, but in terms of what the actual sequence of AWS or otherwise components that the requests are going through, it's pretty opaque as far as I'm aware. You mentioned this idea of function compositions, and this might be a use case where I would want to have one Lambda function spin up, call another Lambda function, which calls another Lambda function. I mean, in programming, we have nested function calls all the time. I make some high-level method, and that high-level method calls a lower-level method, and that might call two lower-level methods. We want to have this nesting system of function calls. And I think more abstractly, we might want to have these complicated, long-lived workflows where you have 20 different lambdas talking to each other and orchestrating some long-lived session like uh you know you could imagine maybe if i want to make uh if i want to build a real-time strategy game or um, an mmo on top of lambda that's pretty hard to do today i don't really have the the durability of my processing system uh that i think i need for uh, for like an mmo why is that? Why, what are the issues with having this long-lived compositional compute with Lambda? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think a lot of it has to do with the core conception of the system. In some sense, if you're talking about long-lived compute that has probably some state tied up with it, you know, you can imagine that if you're building a game, the environment and the characters and the, the objects, whatever the, the objects of the game are, probably have some state associated with them that they're responsible for managing. A lot of that starts to sound very little like a function and more like something like an actor. And so if you talk about a functions as a service system, it becomes a little difficult to envision, at least at first cut, how you might 
manage the statefulness, how you might manage the, the updates to that state, where that state is actually living, how do you deal with fault tolerance if one of these machines with your function fails, then who's responsible for spinning it back up, repairing the state, doing whatever is required for that. All of those things are not readily obvious when functions are the core programming paradigm. And so one of the things that we've been thinking a little bit about is how you can sort of start with functions as the sort of entry point because, you know, Lambda has become relatively popular in the last few years and people are, you know, uh, getting more interested in the paradigm, but how we can also push that programming model forward with introducing state primitives, with introducing maybe even different programming paradigms like actors or like, you know, more stateful, stateful operators that allow you to think about who's responsible for the state and where that state is living, who's updating it, and all those kinds of questions that aren't really addressed by the primitives in a, in a traditional functions as a service system. If we're talking about adding state management to a Lambda-based system, and we'll get into to your approach to that stateful approach, that stateful computing, adding state to Lambda, the naive approach might be, I just want to use uh, some in-memory cache. I want to use an object cache like Redis. I could use a database like DynamoDB. And this could manage my entire state. Why isn't that good enough? Why can't I just manage the state of my computer with uh, these these object storage systems? Yeah, so for some applications, it definitely is good enough. Um, I think I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that some of the, the production applications that we've seen that are running on Lambda today are focused on, you know, really simple state models that are using systems like Dynamo or S3 or Redis, whatever it may be, to store some intermediary state and to maybe communicate between uh, functions when necessary. But there's some core constraints that you run into pretty quickly for a lot of common applications. And these are things like data shipping. You know, Lambda doesn't really give you a facility to make sure that if you're accessing certain kinds of data really frequently, you don't have to ship it over the network every time. You know, you can write certain objects or, or files to slash temp on Lambda. And if you happen to hit the same Lambda executor repeatedly with the request, you can check to see if there's something in slash temp. But that's a pretty hacky and a pretty unreliable way of trying to implement caching. And then on top of that, you know, it's not just data shipping, but there's concerns around consistency. If I'm using DynamoDB, and I have multiple requests running in parallel that may be touching the same state for some reason, Dynamo has very loose consistency guarantees. You might think that a system like Redis, which provides linearizability, at least on a single shard, would be better, but Redis, at least in the, in the cloud-native deployments, isn't auto-scaling, right? So you have a, Lambda, a system like Lambda that's auto-scaling, load goes up, more executors come up seamlessly, but then with Redis, there has to be someone sitting there adding machines, removing machines. Every time you do that on Redis in cluster mode, there's a pretty high overhead because it reshuffles all of the data. So all of these operations become really expensive and cumbersome and they sort of run against the grain of the simplicity and the ease of use that Lambda is really great at offering. And so you start to wonder why you're using all these complicated uh, techniques that you know the, the community has gotten good at in the context of, of non-serverless or serverful programming. But if the core goal of serverless is to use some of the, the more easy to use, auto-scaling, pay-per-use, et cetera, abstractions, then it starts to become pretty difficult to reconcile that with all these complicated scaling procedures and thinking about the way in which um, you're supposed to allocate resources to all the auxiliary components in addition to the compute. Yeah, it's worth taking a step back here and asking, what is the goal? What are we trying to achieve here? I mean, if I want long-lived compute uh, and I want to have scalability, I could just use the traditional AWS stack. I can use EC2 instances. I can use Fargate. I can use auto-scaling groups. I can set up a scalable system. Why do I want any of this? What are we actually trying to achieve here? If we're talking about building a stateful function-as-a-service platform, is there some developer experience ideal that we have in mind that we're trying to get to? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think a lot of it goes back to thinking about who the um, who the, the end users or the developers are. So for a lot of folks who've been living in the cloud for the last 10, 15 years, a lot of this stuff, like you're saying, may sound a little silly. Why are we jumping through all these hoops and trying to uh, reinvent the wheel when we already know how to use you know, Kubernetes and, and horizontal pod autoscaling and all these tools that are that are pretty good at what they do. What's the goal here? And I think, at least from our perspective, one of the really interesting uh, questions is thinking not about who the developers are maybe today or two years ago, but who they will be in five years. At Berkeley, where I'm a grad student, for example, we have uh, recently introduced a, a whole major around uh, data science. And a lot of these folks who are, who are studying data science aren't coming from traditional computer science, software engineering backgrounds, but they're folks who are interested in a variety of other fields who are studying data science as more of an applied major to go learn about you know, data analysis techniques and then apply them to whatever they're interested in. And so thinking about you know, those kinds of folks in the next 5, 10, 15 years who are going to be an increasingly common and increasingly large share of the programmer developer community, it's going to be really difficult for them to have to worry about setting up Kubernetes clusters every time they want to do analysis that doesn't fit on a single machine and to worry about how those things scale up and down and to worry about when you know they should be allocating resources to them or how to configure a pod autoscaler. All those kinds of things are, are maybe not in the, the wheelhouse of, of people who aren't more traditional software developers. And in general, even for people who are familiar with, with more uh, traditional server management techniques and autoscaling, I think there's an attractiveness to serverless, which comes from this idea that you know, you only pay for what you use. You don't have to worry about these traditional techniques of provisioning for peak load and worrying about, you know, how you're going to reallocate resources during the not peak load times and whether you should be running batch jobs on them in the background that can be preempted uh, just in case load spikes and all these kinds of things that that some of the, the large web companies have gotten really good at doing, but maybe aren't what the average developer should be worrying about. And so if we can do a really good job with bringing state management to serverless, if we can sort of help developers rethink the way that they are configuring their servers and building their applications, fitting all these pieces together, it'll actually make everyone more productive. They won't have to worry about mucking around with Kubernetes policies and building their Docker containers and doing all these things that maybe aren't core to the business but are necessary to be running applications today. But it, the question is, is that necessary in the future? And the goal or the hope of serverless is that we can sort of simplify these abstractions and make people more productive by removing some of these obstacles. I see. And I think what you're saying there is not that if we manage to build stateful functions as a service, this is going to solve the problem of the entry-level data scientist who wants to do processing across 80 terabytes of data without thinking about how to configure a Spark cluster. What we're thinking about is, if we can make stateful functions as a service, this is going to be a very interesting infrastructure primitive that will allow platform developers to build the necessary platforms for allowing uh, an entry-level data scientist to do processing across 80 terabytes of data. Yeah, that's a really good clarification. I think the goal here, at least from our perspective, is not to solve every problem that, that you could imagine by building a stateful fast system. But the idea is that you know, especially in the last 15 years, we've seen that open source, whether it's systems like Spark or Pandas more recently, have gained a lot of popularity because they're new paradigms or maybe improvements of existing paradigms that allow people to process data, to do things that they weren't able to do before really easily and quickly. And so the goal here isn't to say that, you know, we're going to build a system and every data scientist is going to use exactly that system. But like you're saying, the infrastructure that we're building, we hope will provide a blueprint for enabling people who come along in the future to say, hey, I have this really interesting way to think about processing data in a serverless fashion. Can I layer it on top of a stateful fast system so now my end users can come along 
and just write code against this API and I'll take care of you know, distributing it and sharding it and making sure that there are the right guarantees and the right scaling properties and all that kind of things. A really good example of that is actually another project in the lab that I work in called Modin, which is a API that sort of sits in between the Pandas API and distributed processing frameworks. And what the folks on the Modin project have done is basically to decouple the Pandas API, which, you know, uh, data scientists and data analysts are, are super familiar with, from the underlying infrastructure where it runs. And they've really thought hard about how to structure data frames under the hood and what the data layout should be and all that kind of thing that the average data scientist doesn't need to think about. And now what they're trying to do is to layer that on top of a bunch of distributed um, data processing framework so that data scientists using pandas can write code against the pandas API that they know and then under the hood maybe you know switch a config or something and then have it automatically run in a distributed fashion so they don't have to worry about memory constraints and shuffles and sharding and all that kind of stuff but still get all the nice properties of scalability and you know distributed compute for free your goal with cloudburst and Cloudburst, by the way, I should say, is this paper that you published. It's about a stateful serverless platform, which is what we've been talking about in the abstract. Tell me about why you first started working on the problem of building stateful serverless computing. Yeah, so we, and, and my research group sort of has a database background. We all sort of have studied databases and, and traditional database techniques. And we got sort of excited about cloud infrastructure four or five years ago, just trying to think about the level at which you can think about scale and the uh, nice properties that you can rent machines, uh, not have to worry about resources, all those kinds of things, and, and do things at relatively with, with relatively high ease of use. And so serverless sort of just accelerated that excitement when we started thinking about all the different ways in which we could make programming easier, like we've been talking about for the last few minutes. And so what we realized was when we took a sort of deeper look at serverless from an infrastructure perspective was that there's all these things that it's pretty good at, like event processing for web applications or, you know, handling uh, orchestration across a bunch of existing services, you know, th 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 that's actually a really common use case if you look at the AWS Lambda use cases is that they use Lambda functions to basically trigger events into other services to write things into data warehouses and so on. But what we realized was that if you really wanted to push that forward and to think about how we could restructure the way that developers are going to be writing code, building platforms against cloud infrastructure, sort of like we've been talking about using data science as an example, serverless didn't really fit the bill. There weren't really abstractions. There weren't really ways to structure the infrastructure to take advantage of all of those nice properties of serverless without having to jump through all these complicated hoops around, you know, like we've already said, consistency and uh, data shipping and so on. And so the reason that we started tackling stateful functions as a service was it felt like a concrete way to make cloud programming easier with all the benefits of serverless, but while also improving guarantees around consistency and performance um, and data locality with the sort of nice APIs that already come with serverless. Okay, and as we talk about the structure that you built with Cloudburst, the architecture, I first want to talk about the design goals. You set out with some design goals for the problems and the features, the problems you wanted to alleviate and the features that you wanted out of Cloudburst. One key design goal was logical disaggregation with physical co-location. What does that mean? Logical disaggregation with physical co-location. Yeah, so something that we haven't touched on from the perspective of existing functions as a service systems is this idea of disaggregation, which is, I think, becoming increasingly popular in a lot of cloud architectures. And the idea is that cloud providers can gain a lot of efficiency by logically disaggregating compute and storage, which means that there's a compute service that's running on these machines over here, there's a storage service that's running on those machines over there. And so you can imagine a simple example might be S3 and Lambda. 
when you spin up a Lambda function and you run it, you don't know uh, who else is running Lambda functions on the same physical machine that you're running a Lambda function on. All you know is that you have this core for the next you know, a few hundred milliseconds and you're gonna do your compute and it's on AWS to make sure that there's no security vulnerabilities or data leakage that happens across that. And similarly, when you put an object into S3 on the same physical hard drive, um, there may be a hundred other users who have objects living there. And the nice thing about that from the cloud provider's perspective is that they can use fewer resources and really aggressively pack users into this multi-tenanted environment. And if they can do that, then they can also turn around and provide lower costs to users because they're using fewer resources to service the same number of requests. So that's this idea of disaggregation. And we felt that disaggregation was a really nice feature. We didn't want to remove disaggregation because for, for all the reasons that, that I just talked about. And so the idea was that having this logical disaggregation and saying that, you know, we're going to have some resources where compute runs, some resources where storage runs, and you don't have to worry about who else is living on those same physical resources, we'll take care of that for you. That shouldn't preclude having physical co-location, which has always been sort of a core tenant in data systems, is that we don't want to be shipping data all over the place, over the network especially, repeatedly. And so if we can achieve physical locality for data accesses, that will improve performance. But we also want to make sure that we have disaggregation because it provides these nice properties for both the cloud provider and for the programmer. Right. And it almost sounds like I mean, when when Lambda first came out, the way that I thought about it was, okay, these are just functions that people are using as glue code. They're getting scheduled onto this questionable server server infrastructure. The server might fail at any time. Maybe these are old servers. Maybe this is just spare capacity on a dusty old Amazon server that's dedicated to EC2 instances. It's about to fall over. And you don't get really strong guarantees about whether your Lambda function is going to finish, when it's going to spin up. It's this this flaky function. And so, you know, as Amazon, you know, you, th you think of Amazon as just scheduling these functions onto random servers throughout their infrastructure. Uh, of course, we don't know. But here you're saying, if we can have a dedicated, these dedicated blocks of infrastructure that we're scheduling functions onto, at least these stateful kinds of functions where we're going to want to scale it up to many, many instances of functions and perhaps uh, large amounts of data, we actually want larger dedicated quantities of infrastructure for these serverless functions. So it almost sounds like a move towards an entirely different conception of how the infrastructure should be managing the serverless functions. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think, you know, we've already seen more and more of a move to this um, with hosted infrastructure services, things that are sometimes referred to as backend as a service systems. You know, if you look at AWS, a good example might be a system like uh, Athena, where you can run arbitrary SQL queries over structured or semi-structured data that's stored in S3. And so what that's effectively done is it's built a disaggregated system. S3 is running on some machines over here. Athena is running over there. And you, your API is just a SQL query. And it is serverless in the sense that you upload your SQL query and you basically pay for, I believe, the number of gigabytes of data that's processed and maybe how long the query takes, something like that. And you don't have to worry about you know, how the data is moved. Maybe Amazon under the hood is being really smart and is pushing some of those compute cycles down onto the same machines that are running S3. Maybe they're not, we don't know. But at the end of the day, we don't have to care about it. But the nice thing about this disaggregated architecture is that you pay for the data that's stored in S3. And that's one service that you worry about. And then if you want to run SQL queries over that, you pay for the data that's processed in Athena. And that's a separate service that you worry about. You don't have to think about, I'm going to write some data to S3 and then I'm going to spin up an EC2 instance over here and I have to worry about the get requests from S3 and how much they cost and how long that's going to up my EC2 bill. All of that stuff is sort of abstracted away from you because we can disaggregate the services that are doing storage and compute and allow you to manage each one of those separately. To run through some of the other concepts 
the design goals of Cloudburst before we get into the architecture. You wanted distributed session consistency. You wanted users to be able to compose functions together. You wanted the ability for functions to communicate with each other. And in order to get these features, you needed some state management and you needed storage semantics out of your function as a service runtime. Tell me about the requirements for state management, the requirements for storage, and what you did to implement that. Yeah, so I think you you mentioned distributed session consistency, and I think that's a really important idea in this whole, uh, in, in the broader picture here. Because if you start you know, just doing simple function compositions and think about how you might do it in Lambda. Um, let's say you're just running two functions, each of which is going to read some data from a storage system. And let's say you're using DynamoDB because that seems to be a common uh, sort of component in, in architectures that use Lambda. And let's say that your first function might read some data from Dynamo, do some processing, then trigger the second function. The second function happens to read the same piece of data. With DynamoDB's default consistency guarantees, you're not guaranteed that the same logical request, which happen to have two functions, are going to read the same piece of data. I might read key x twice and read version one the first time and version two the second time. And that makes it really difficult for programmers to reason about what's happening in the world. Did the data change? Or did function f happen to read a stale version? How do you even know what the versions are? Dynamo doesn't really provide an API for you to understand what, what's newer and what's older. It's on the application to maybe write that into the payload, for example. All of these things become really thorny questions really quickly. And you're sort of forced into hacks like, you know, having a versioned, a versioning scheme on top of Dynamo, or maybe explicitly shipping data that you require consistency for between functions, whatever it is that you need to do as the application developer to make sure that there's sort of a sane view of the world from the perspective of your code. And so having distributed session consistency, you're right, is a, is a sort of storage-esque primitive, but it's really important for you know, the sort of sanity of the programmer to be able to say, I have a function over here, it's going to execute. And then as a part of the same request, another function is going to execute. And I want to make sure that there's some consistency guarantee across the two functions that execute. And so from a, a database perspective, that guarantee that I just mentioned is often called repeatable read. I read a key once, I read it later on in the same request, I should see the same version of it. And so in terms of what the requirements are from a storage system, you know, you can imagine schemes that would that would build maybe some version of these guarantees across multiple storage engines. We actually built on top of an existing key value store that we had developed as a part of our research called Anna, which is um, a really low latency auto scaling key value store that avoids all uh, coordination techniques. And the way that it does this is by using these data structures called lattices or CRDTs that provide semantics for automatically merging conflicting updates without any user intervention. So a simple example would be a set. If I have two replicas of a set, they can accept updates in parallel. And then asynchronously, they can tell each other what values are in the set. And because of the semantics of a set, once an object is put into the set, we can just say that you know it should be inserted into the other replica of the set as well. And we can asynchronously resolve and combine those conflicting updates. And so there's a bunch of data structures in the research literature that have taken advantage of this property that's sometimes summarized as like associative, commutative, and idempotent. As long as your, your conflict resolution satisfies those three properties, we can asynchronously um, resolve conflicting updates without any user intervention. And so the reason that we decided to use Anna as the sort of underlying storage substrate to help provide these semantics is because it um, sort of fits with the standard mold of some of these autoscaling cloud systems like Dynamo and S3 in that it doesn't have strong consistency. It doesn't use sort of really restrictive coordination techniques, but it provides neater semantics that helped us build some of these distributed session guarantees on top of it without requiring us to you know, build a versioning scheme on top of a system like Dynamo or really think about, you know, where data lives and, and how we should be managing conflicting 
updates and all those kinds of things. And so using Anna as sort of the storage substrate was a really nice way to sort of delegate some of the the conflict resolution and consistency mechanisms that it already took care of. And then we were able to layer protocols on top of it and the Cloudburst layer to provide this notion of distributed session consistency. Great. And I want to revisit, Anna, this auto-scaling key value store a little bit later. But let's talk about the architecture for Cloudburst at this point. So a Cloudburst cluster has multiple VMs and functions get scheduled onto those VMs. Each of those VMs can run some number of functions, and uh, these functions can can use local cache, and there's also this auto-scaling key-value store that can be used by the entire Cloudburst runtime. So this, first of all, the, the, the VMs. So the Cloudburst cluster has a bunch of VMs on it, and functions that get issued to the entire Cloudburst cluster get scheduled onto those VMs. What happens when a function gets scheduled onto a VM? What does the VM do? Yeah, so what the VM basically does is that it reads in the code from the storage engine. The, our, our initial implementation of the whole system is in Python, so it reads in a pickled Python function. It deserializes it. It checks to see if any of the arguments to that function are of a special reference type. And if any of the arguments are references, it basically treats those as KVS keys. So whatever keys are stored in those references, it automatically sucks them out of storage. And if they're stored locally in the cache, then we just read things from the cache and don't have to go over the network. And then we'll execute the function passing in those arguments and the references are automatically resolved. And then once the code finishes executing, it either will trigger a downstream function if there is a downstream function, or it'll write the result to storage, or optionally, it can also just send the user synchronously a result back to the requesting client. Each of these VMs has a set of executors. Can you explain what an executor is and what role an executor plays in, in the function scheduling? Yeah, so an executor is basically a single thread that does the process that I just walked through. So each thread has a separate ID. The scheduler will basically look at all of the threads in the system, see how much work it's assigned to each of them recently. It uses some heuristics based on data locality, based on load management, those kinds of things. It picks a, an executor thread to assign the function request to. And then once the executor receives that request, it does the, the fetches and the execution and the returning to the user. That whole process is done by the executor thread. So each of these VMs also has a cache. What kinds of data is being stored on the local cache uh, of of the VM that you know these again these VMs are accepting the functions that are getting scheduled onto them uh, and then they're executing those functions. What does the local cache in the VM do? The cache is responsible for intermediating intermediating between all of the requests between the uh, functions themselves and the storage engine. So the functions as a part of their code can do arbitrary writes and reads from the storage engine. So whenever a read or write is issued, the cache sort of sits in between and says, if I have this data stored locally, then I'm just gonna return it automatically from the cache. And if not, then I'm gonna suck it in from the storage engine, I'm gonna cache it locally and then return it to the client. And so as we start doing more and more requests, especially if data access is skewed in some way or there's some hot set of keys, it's likely that that data is going to be stored in cache. And so whenever a function requests that data, we're just going to read it from cache and avoid that expensive network round trip that we were talking about early on in the conversation. Okay, that's, that's a, a clever design. Basically, the idea is you've got these different functions and the functions might need to do some data sharing, they might need to reference variables that have been created or operated on by another function. And if you need to to read one of those variables and you, you don't have access to it in your VM's local cache, you can reach out to this auto-scaling key value store, ANA, that is accessible 
from all of the different VMs that functions are getting scheduled onto. And that's it's kind of like the that's kind of like the disk of the overall Cloudburst computer that you've got there. Do I understand correctly? That's exactly right. Now, does this lead to any cache coherence issues? The fact that you have these different functions as a service, they've all, you know, they've got local caches that they're accessing, and then you've got this auto-scaling key value store that they might need to reach out to. Can that lead to cache coherence issues? Yeah, so in general, we have not thought about managing cache consistency as a problem that that should require strong coordination just because it sort of introduces all these performance barriers that are really difficult to reason about. So what we've basically done is to take advantage of the coordination freeness of Anna and to leverage that to keep the caches roughly as up to date as the store as we can expect the storage engine to be. So what we do is under the hood Anna sort of has a distributed multicast mechanism that allows us to keep all of the replicas of each key in sync with each other using those sort of associative, commutative, and idempotent merge functions that I talked about earlier. So the way that works is that if there's uh, you know three replicas of a key in Anna, all of them can update themselves in parallel without any coordination. And then periodically, they'll all send each other any updates that they received for each key in the storage engine and use that merge function to make sure that they all deterministically end up at the same value. So what we did was at the caching layer, we actually used the same CRDT or lattice data structures that Anna uses. And the cache layer basically is treated as an extra KVS replica. So whenever updates are received at the KVS layer, the caches can actually subscribe to certain keys in the KVS. And when the KVS performs its sort of distributed multicast protocol, it looks to see if any caches are subscribed to the keys that it's currently multicasting. And it basically just sends an extra message in addition to the storage replicas to the cache to say, hey, here's a new version of the key that you might want to know about. And if the cache you know, still has that data cache, then it'll merge it in using that same merge logic. And if it doesn't, then it will just drop the message and we'll treat it as just you know, an empty message. So the implementation of Cloudburst, we're talking abstractly about VMs and caches on those VMs. You had to actually implement this. Did you implement it on a cloud provider? Yeah, so everything runs on AWS EC2. The the underlying infrastructure uses Kubernetes, and KOps to interface with EC2. And we basically have our own Docker containers that we run. We have our own sort of auto-scaling infrastructure that looks at load metrics and you know machine failures and all those kinds of things and uses sort of KOps as an API to scale the, the whole service up and down in response to load changes and you know sort of standard heuristics around load management. What were the implementation difficulties in actually building this out? So I think the core sort of implementation challenges that we ran into was sort of layering the infrastructure in a way that allowed us to be as um, sort of seamless as possible, akin to the way that existing functions as a service systems are, while also sort of dealing with the constraints of existing server full cloud infrastructure. So sort of making sure that every time that we want to auto scale, for example, we maybe don't want to wait the three minutes it might take for an EC2 instance to come up and then the extra two minutes that Kubernetes takes to download all of the infrastructure containers that it runs and then download our containers and all those kinds of things. So finding sort of the right ways to manage the infrastructure, make sure that we're sufficiently nimble, but aren't, you know, wildly over allocating resources. We are working on a research budget after all, so we can't just leave, you know, uh, tons of machines lying idle all the time if we're not doing anything with them. So trying to find a balance around sort of managing the server full infrastructure and how we can translate that into serverless infrastructure. Keeping in mind, of course, that we're not running sort of a 
large-scale multi-tenanted production system that tons of people are using every day, but sort of are doing this in, in their research context. So trying to navigate sort of all those kinds of things has been a really interesting challenge. Another one that sort of comes to mind is dealing with, you know, moving data across the network across multiple languages, Anna is implemented in C++. The caching layer is as well, just because we wanted to take advantage of the same data structures, but the programming interface is in Python. And anyone who sort of worked on distributed Python will know pretty intimately that paying for serialization and deserialization in Python is really expensive and really, really slow. So trying to think about how we can mitigate some of those overheads, maybe uh, add caching in addition to in sort of on a per VM basis, also on a per executor basis so that we can store deserialized versions, reducing the overheads of deserializing functions on every request. All those kinds of things were things that we sort of had to work through at a fine-grained, sort of with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that we were reducing the overheads as much as possible because it start, started to add up pretty fast when we didn't consider these things. Now, the prospect of productionizing this, it seems realistic. You could imagine offering what you have built with Cloudburst as a function-as-a-service company. You could imagine... Uh, if, if it works as you intended, selling compute time on a Cloudburst cluster. Is that a realistic possibility? Yeah, I mean, we're we're still trying to finish grad school, so we haven't really thought super hard about what a commercial offering of this would look like. But we have been starting to play around with a bunch of applications that run on top of it to get a feel for what the sort of sharp edges are here and where the applications that run on top can really derive benefit from some of the abstractions that we've been providing. And so one example is, is an application that I already mentioned, which is the distributed pandas infrastructure that we've been working with with folks in our research lab to implement on top of Cloudverse. And we've also been thinking about how to make data science easier in general by building a serverless backend for Jupyter notebooks to basically enable folks who are writing code against Jupyter to not worry about where the state is living and maybe even scale up their workload seamlessly without having to worry about, you know, where Jupyter Hub is running and what the resource constraints on all of that infrastructure is, but to sort of get a more serverless feel and say, hey, for this particular cell, I want to scale it up really fast. And then the rest of the time, I just want to use one thread to run my code or something like that. So sort of as like a compromise answer to your question, we've been thinking about some of the more concrete applications that we can layer on top of this and derive really interesting benefits from the model that we've implemented with Cloudburst. But we haven't really thought yet about what some of the, the more commercial applications of it might be. Have you talked to anybody at AWS about Cloudburst? Yeah, we. Um, uh, the nice thing about our research lab is that we're actually sponsored by all of the major cloud providers. So we get to we get to chat with them, you know, a couple times a year and, and get their feedback on what we've been working on. I think they are definitely interested in the ideas. They see that they see these ideas as I think interesting future directions for some of their services, but. At the end of the day, you know, they are running a, you know, multi-million dollar production service, so they can't go running around implementing sort of newfangled research ideas. And I think a lot of the work, from my understanding, that's gone into some of these systems in the in recent years has been really focused on hardening the system, making sure that it provides reasonable guarantees, for example, around cold start latencies, like I mentioned earlier, and to really sort of tighten the, the nuts and bolts around the core offering. But I'm sure they're, they're thinking about what the, what the future directions of these services are and have definitely shown interest in sort of learning more about what we've built and, and how we think, you know, the ideas might be more applicable in their setting. You're part of the Rise Lab and uh, I've done a few shows with people from the Rise Lab. Why are the Rise Lab people so interested in in serverless? And and I'd love to know just what your experience like has been, what your experience has been like at the Rise Lab. Yeah. So to I'll, I'll maybe answer those questions uh, backwards. The the Rise Lab is is super unique uh, from my perspective because it has 
um, a really strong research background, obviously, but also has a ton of contact and interaction with industry that allows uh, a lot of the researchers in the lab to choose problems that I think are really applied and are really focused on moving the needle for problems that folks in industry are running into. And so I think that sort of perspective, that, that close interaction that we get just by virtue of being in Berkeley and being really close to the Silicon Valley um, in San Francisco and having those interactions on a somewhat regular basis sort of tempers and, and, and motivates a lot of the research that we do. And I think one of the reasons that folks have gotten really interested in serverless, not to be super repetitive here, but is really starting to think about how we can bring some of the simplicity of serverless to a broader variety of applications because we are starting to see more and more people who don't maybe have traditional computer science backgrounds writing code and wanting to deploy code, but not knowing what the right abstractions and the right infrastructure to layer on top of is. And serverless provides a really neat way to sort of simplify the lives of those people. And so that's why I think a lot of the interactions, conversations that we've had have moved us in the direction of serverless and have, have pushed us to think about simpler abstractions for cloud programming that don't require the complexity of servers and Kubernetes and all these kinds of things that people are dealing with today. And what would be your research focus? What would you be working on if you were not working on serverless right now? What kinds of problems are you thinking about? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think I got interested in cloud infrastructure before I got interested in serverless. Um, and so I think if I wasn't working on serverless, I would still sort of be in the general space of thinking about neat ways to take advantage of the scale and the, the sort of resource availability of the cloud. It wasn't really possible before the advent of systems like EC2 and S3 that operate at this massive scale that people weren't really dealing with before. And so I think finding ways to take advantage of that and bring developer guarantees, whether it's around consistency or fault tolerance, making those things more seamless, which I know is starting to sound a lot like serverless. But I, I would say that the reason that we came to serverless was because it felt like a vehicle for making those things easier rather than we looked at serverless and then decided that we should make those things easier, if that makes sense. It does. Vikram, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for having me. This has been awesome. 